You're listening to a DM podcast. We are working with manufacturers to try and develop scanners that are less than 50 kilograms in weight to diagnose strokes out in the bush. The window for treatment's four hours. If we can get out to them with a brain scanner and scan them on the ground, then we can treat them at two hours. Something like a million brain cells die per minute in a stroke. That's extraordinary. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Radri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. In my view, an organisation is only as good as the people who make it up. We here at the Royal Flying Doctor Service are very lucky to have long-serving staff across our aviation and clinical, executive and administrative teams. And I do feel our reputation and long-service record over all of Australia is due to our dedicated and professional staff and executives. My interview in this episode is with Dr. Marty Steer, who leads the team in SA and NT and manages our clinical standards and primary health and emergency services in South Australia and Northern Territory. I think there's one word that best describes Marty, passionate. Hi, Marty. Hey, Lana. At what age did you decide to study medicine? I, I'm betting it was fairly young. I think the question is, did I ever actually decide to study medicine? You know, I was one of these kids who always performed well at school. I'm a bit of a bookworm and a bit of a nerd. And in high school, I think you sometimes just put one foot in front of the other and continue where you go. And I honestly didn't have any really strong passions about who I wanted to be when I grew up. And so when we went through career counselling and we were thinking about what should we put on our form as our, what course would you like to do at university? I put down medicine, I put down chemical engineering, I put down biomedical engineering, even though I didn't know what it was, figuring whatever I get into, I'll give that a go. And so I got into medicine serendipitously uh, because I ended up loving it, but that's more luck, I think, than anything else. Are there um, other doctors or nurses within your family at all? Not at all, actually. My um, my mum and dad are hardworking, self-made humans. And so my mum was a really um, outstanding executive assistant. My dad got his accounting degree after I was born at night school. And so I I was kind of forging a bit of a a new path on the foundations laid by my parents, I guess, but we're certainly not a a doctor-lawyer family by any stretch of the imagination. My grandmother had a market garden in Montacute in South Australia. Oh, wow. So are you a South Australian girl by birth? Is that where you grew up? I am. I'm an Adelaide girl. I was uh, born here. I grew up in Salisbury in the northern suburbs and ended up in the eastern suburbs. And so years later, after doing lots of different moves, I've ended up back here as South Australians have a tendency to do. Yeah, homing pigeons. We really are. (laughs) 
<laughs> so how did you end up, you ended up with a speciality. Was that also just by following following the path that you sort of found yourself on or did you have a passion to work with children? I kind of came to it quite gradually, actually, Lana. I, When I went into medical school, I've always been a bit of a high achiever. So I decided, well, you know, what would be a tricky and cool thing to do? I'm going to be a craniofacial surgeon. And so I initially went into medical school thinking, let's try and do something really tough and awesome like surgery. And what I knew for a fact is that I would not end up in a girl job, which was pediatrics or obstetrics. And I ended up in pediatric emergency medicine. And that came from what we all do in medical school, which is we explore the things in front of us and we try out different skills and explore different areas of medicine. And I really enjoyed the adrenaline of emergency medicine, to be honest, but I also got a sense that once you saw a patient in the adult emergency department, often things were a little bit too late. And then I went into the paediatric emergency department as a fifth-year medical student at the Women's and Children's Hospital, and I immediately found my tribe. It was adrenaline care. It was also just lovely care. And honestly, it wasn't the kids that drew me to it. It was the people I was working with. You get doctors and nurses and social workers with just a really special heart. And it was a team that I felt like I wanted to be a part of. And then the love for paediatrics came alongside of that. And once I did that rotation as a student, I never looked back. I knew that paediatric emergency medicine was the path that I wanted to take. Wow. And then how did that end up taking you to both the US and Kenya? Well, In fifth year med school, I also met my wonderful American husband and uh, college is not cheap in the US. He was in Australia on a study abroad program and I was the broad. Um, And we met and fell in love and the Navy had paid for his college tuition. And so he was committed to the US Navy on nuclear submarines of all things, which is a fun little come full circle story that I won't get into. But because he was committed to the US Navy, there was never a question if we were going to be together and get married, we would be in the US. And so in my final year of medical school, I found myself navigating the US licensing exams and my six-year med school exams and figuring out how to move to another country. We got married in December of my final year of medical school, packed up and off we went onto a new adventure and tried to start again over in the US. What did your parents think about you suddenly disappearing over the big blue? It was a big shock to the system and took quite a while to navigate. And um, I and my husband have a wonderful relationship with my mum and dad. My dad actually just passed away earlier this year. And our relationship over the last almost 25 years of marriage has been really supportive, but it's always a shock to the system. And my parents took a bit of getting used to that. And it takes a long time to get to know a son-in-law who's from the other side of the world when you don't have very long to get to know him. So like all things, it was a change that we all grew into over time. So how long did you stay in the US for? We ended up staying for six and a half years. My husband's commitment to the Navy was actually six years and we stayed six extra months for me because the the US medical training system is really quite rigid. You have to enter a three-year program uh, to get your training in your first specialty. So I entered uh, a three-year training program in pediatrics. And entering that system as a foreign medical graduate is really complicated. And I'm very grateful that I got into it. I actually went over there with no contacts. 
uh, and no real door into that system and couldn't actually get an interview or a job early on and was actually considering going back to school to become a paramedic. I, I didn't think I'd be able to be employed as a doctor. And then doors opened up through me just being around and present. Um, and I did three years of paediatric training while my husband was in and out at sea underneath the water. Uh, and then three more years of paediatric emergency subspecialty training. Um, and we were just really blessed and fortunate that his Navy detailers were really supportive of us. And we didn't have to live apart in different towns for more than six months, which is not always the way it works when you've got a military and a medical person in a family. So uh, we had six and a half years of marriage in northern Florida of all places. Oh, wow. And so, and then how did you get from there to Kenya? After Andy got out of the Navy and after I was done with my training, we actually uh, took a step back and said, what next? And we thought, well, let's move to Australia. We didn't have kids at that stage. And so in 2005, we took a few months off to travel and ended up back in Australia. But during those months of travel, we just had some soul searching, some getting to know each other again, to be perfectly honest, after six really intense years. And just a time to step back and reflect on who are we and who do we want to be. And we both had this sense of to whom much is given, much is required. And so we moved back to Australia with the perspective of let's settle in here and have a kid or two if that works out, but we'd like to go and do some humanitarian work at some stage. So we actually spent the next five years in Australia and um, had my beautiful daughter and wonderful son, Riley and Liam. Andy went to work for SA Water as a project manager and I worked at the Women's and Children's Hospital and translated my American training to Australian training as a, a paediatric emergency specialist. And it wasn't until the kids were aged two and four that we picked up and found a great opportunity uh, to serve in Kenya. Wow. Wow, that's that's a bit of a cultural change. Okay, so you and the fam all head over to Kenya. And can you tell me about the hospital setting that you were working in? Yeah, so uh, we found a, a rural mission hospital, so a 350-bed hospital, which is about the size of the Women's and Children's Hospital in South Australia. Um, in Kenya, the health system is usually government hospitals and then this massive network of, of mission hospitals across the country. And we found a mission hospital that was looking for um, a paediatrician and was actually in the middle of a, a massive infrastructure upgrade and looking for a project manager. And the other wonderful thing about it is that there was a local international school that was a boarding school as well as a day school that was walking distance. And so we knew that in moving there, we wouldn't be on our own and unsupported from a professional standpoint. We'd be a part of a network of professionals, not just providing care, but training the next generation of professionals. And that was really important to us. But we also wouldn't have to homeschool our kids as they got older, because we know that's not a skill set either of us is particularly strong in. <laughs> so knowing there was a local school was really wonderful. I think the COVID pandemic has definitely proven that many of us parents are not great at homeschooling. <laughs> so I think it's also okay, Marty, that there's something you're not good at. So oh, there I'm are glad plenty of things like <laughs> I'm glad we found something. <laughs> no, that has a degree of patience, resilience and skill that I absolutely lack and I'm so grateful for in other humans. So you were in Kenya for how long? I mean, that's such an amazing job. And yeah, could you give me like a little synopsis of what it brought you? Like, yeah. did it fulfill you? Did it fill that need? Yeah. 
you know, initially, Lana, we committed to a term of two years and the organisation that we went with, uh, which is a Christian mission organisation, the funding model is that you raise your own support. We were like sponsor kids. And so we had a network of supporters um, supporting us, you know, with monthly donations that would essentially cover our salary and our travel costs and our rent and everything that we needed to live a life over there. And so we got that network in place and went over for two years. And after about six months, we both just looked at each other and said, I think we're here for a little bit longer. And we really wanted our roles over there to be like scaffolding on a building, right? We didn't want to build the building. We both wanted to be there in supporting roles for the incredible local doctors and nurses and engineers and managers that we worked with um, to be able to strengthen their own training programs uh, to contribute to the kind of strategic growth and sustainability of the organisation that we were working with and serving with. And once we realised it was a place where we were thriving as a family, we signed up um, just three years at a time for, for longer terms. And we ended up being there for eight and a half years in total. And that was our kids thriving, growing up in another country, having a a broader worldview, surrounded by a community of incredible like-minded people. And so the kids were two and four when we moved over. And when we moved back here in 2019 to Australia, they'd just finish grade six and seven. Uh, wow. So their whole primary school years were in Kenya with, of course, visits back and forth and some sabbaticals back in Australia and the US too, because it's a very tiring and draining place to live when demand always outstrips supply. And so figuring out wellness, balance and resilience was a constant juggling act. And what led you to then return to Australia? Was there a point where you said, okay, we're done, we we had a need, we had a humanitarian need and, and desire and we've now fulfilled that and now it's the next stage? Was it was it actually your children getting to that point where high school is next? It was actually a constellation of things including that. We had discussed that when the kids got to around grade six and seven, that that is a decision-making time. I was reluctant for us to move the kids in grade nine or 10. High school years are hard enough without moving countries. And especially for your two kids, who have got two passports and have grandparents on two different sides of the world. So as that time was coming up, we're in that what's next for us? Do we extend or do we come back phase? We also found uh, my dad had contracted a chronic lung disease that I wasn't sure if he would live six months or six years, but I knew it might not be a long time. So that was helpful for us to say, should we look at coming back? And then I've been keeping my eye on healthcare in Australia, as one does, and I have to say the thought of coming back to Australia and working in a private hospital didn't inspire me. The thought of coming back and working in the public health system was fine, but I saw the role for the medical director of the RFDS South Australian Northern Territory advertised and I thought, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. And earlier in my career, I'd really pigeonholed myself as a paediatric emergency doctor. But throughout our eight years in Kenya, I had become the leader of the paediatric team. And then I'd become the clinical director of the hospital and had really developed a passion for organizational leadership and strategy and fixing systems rather than fixing the patient in front of me. And mm. so I'd been doing that and really enjoying that in Kenya. And so when the RFDS role came up, I thought, oh, that would fit. It's caring for our vulnerable populations 
but my kids being able to be in a city and be near their grandparents, especially if, if grandpa doesn't have too long left, and I could still be a part of participating in strengthening systems in South Australia and the Territory where there are some really remote people. And it just felt like the right step to us as a family to at least apply for it and see what happened. And it was all of those things coming together that meant that the timing was right to come back at the end of 2019. And I I can't express to you how grateful I am for that because it was the beginning of 2020 that COVID hit and we would have been trapped in Kenya and we wouldn't have been able to visit my parents or Andy's Mm. parents. And the timing was just exactly, I think, for our family, what it was meant to be. Mm. Well, it's brilliant having you part of the team. And when you say 2019, it doesn't seem quite long enough because I feel like you've been around for ages. <laughs> We've so. all been uh, in the trenches for the last few years, Lana. COVID was a nice way to get to know people all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know you've played an absolutely vital role there in what you're doing now, but how has it been for you to culturally go from working in Kenya to then coming back to Australia and suddenly being in pandemic mode uh, and now you know against you know your day-to-day sort of settling down of serving rural and remote Australia what are the differences and how does it is it still tickling your fancy is it still are you still finding it rewarding I love my role Lana I'm so happy doing what I'm doing you know it's interesting coming back in 2019 coming back to COVID was actually a oh, okay, I just guess we keep the adrenaline levels high. I mean, I had come through a pretty intense role in Kenya. I don't know if you remember, but right before COVID, there was a a worldwide Ebola scare for a, a couple of years, right? And whilst Kenya wasn't right next door to where Ebola was, we were ready for it. We had prepared as a hospital for it. We had planned to set up the extra wards outside. We had talked to staff about who would volunteer to care for Ebola patients. We had talked as a family with me and my role. If Ebola came to Kenya, what would we do? And we knew that we would send Andy and the kids home and I would stay. And whilst I wouldn't volunteer to be hands-on because I have a responsibility to be a mum and a wife and a daughter and a a friend that was more important to me. Still being around for my team was also important to me. Mm. And so in that context, coming back to COVID was just like, I know how to do this, bring it on. (laughs) And I feel like it was, in some ways it was really great because it helped me transition the knowledge that I had to the new role that I had. But in some ways, it kept me in crisis mode for a couple of years. And it wasn't until I think a couple of years ago that I've had to step back and say, okay, we're not in crisis mode anymore. How do I delegate and lead well? How do I build the team around me rather than just get through COVID? How do we look towards the future? And so I think the bigger culture shock probably was deferred for a couple of years because COVID was just BAU, all right? You deal with not having enough resources and trying to bring systems together that don't exist yet. Yeah, so true. And I presume up until that point, you never had any actual dealings with aircraft because dealing with a COVID pandemic in such a small, confined space, it's a whole new level. It's a whole new challenge. Did you find that difficult? I didn't. 
Fun fact. So before we moved to Kenya, um, South Australia Health um, and SAS launched MedStar, the the state retrieval service here in South Australia. And so I was one of the inaugural paediatric and neonatal consultants in retrieval. So I worked for MedStar for a year before we moved to Kenya. But I would come back about once a year and cover orientation for them and work some shifts. And in 2017, we actually took a year off as a family from Kenya um, to come back and have a sabbatical. I went back to school and got my Master of Business Administration. But at the same time, I worked for MedStar again, half time. And so the aeromedical environment and the aeromedical community, I was actually really familiar with over here. So it was actually a bringing together of so many different parts of my professional life to take on this role. And I think that's one of the reasons I was also hired for this role is I I brought both the experience of working in a resource-constrained setting um, and the discipline that you need for that and the creativity you need for that. But alongside that was my experience in the aeromedical environment in a a really high-functioning skilled service that MedStar Kids is. Uh, Mm. So when COVID came along, it was just more a matter of bringing all the information together and also building a network because even though I'd been in a small aircraft, we were all figuring this out together. Which way does the airflow in the aircraft? What is the right PPE and masks to be wearing? And I'm an overcautious human. And so right from the start, February 2020, when people were like, oh, let's see what happens. We were in full PPE, we were in coveralls, we were in masks, just assuming the worst. And it turned out to be the right approach. And we didn't have any of our staff get COVID from an aircraft throughout the pandemic, which is um, really remarkable. It's amazing, I think, but it says a lot about the strength of the organisation and the approach that we took. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you love about your day-to-day role now, Marty? Because it's pretty varied. What floats your boat? I think... A couple of things. One of them is the operational. It's seeing the patient stories is just really lovely. I I get to see the consolidated data of everything that happens across South Australia and Northern Territory. And so on a monthly basis, as I'm reviewing data and making sure that we're providing high quality care, I get this beautiful consolidated picture of the diversity of patients that we've taken care of. Could you give me an example of that? Yeah. I mean, what I love is that RFDS South Australia Northern Territory works across Adelaide, Port Augusta, Alice Springs and Darwin. And each one of those is a slightly different patient population with several different contractual partners. And so for our Port Augusta team, I get to see how a small team that does one or two retrievals a day goes out as far as the Western Australian border, the Queensland border, um, the New South Wales border, um, and not just goes out to retrieve them, but gives this incredible advice over the phone for the two hours that it takes our teams to get there. And watching them work together as a high-functioning team and then read the feedback from patients about your team was so friendly and kind, that says so much more to me than did the patient live or die. But thank you for the kind of care that you provided. And I felt so reassured by the voice on the phone. I see that. I see the data from our Adelaide flight nursing team where we work in partnership with SA Health to provide into hospital retrievals. And I see their pictures of today I went from Adelaide to Port Pirie to Port Augusta to Sejuna to Port Augusta to Adelaide caring for five different patients, some going home, some coming back and seeing just the incredible 
efficiency and effectiveness of our regional inter-hospital services, making sure that people get to and from the regional centres. And then in Alice Springs, I see our incredible relationships between our flight nurses and pilots and the doctors we work with from NT Health, um, going out to Uluru or Uendamu or Elliot and picking up patients for whom it would literally take them eight hours to drive to a hospital, but we can get them to care and, and change the outcome of their stroke or heart attack or get them over sepsis that would have killed them and the diversity of the communities that we serve and the different skill sets that each of the team members bring, I get to see that. And the challenge for me is to communicate that big picture back to the team because I think every team member on the front line sees the patient in front of them and knows the impact that they've made. But helping see the fabric that you're a part of, especially when you've had a bad day or an Mm. overwhelming day, is the stuff that helps bring you meaning or remind you of the why that you came to work here in the first Mm. place. Well, I was going to ask you about that because we're talking about frontline staff and trauma can play a really big role. When you're going out and and, and what you're confronted with can be uh, quite severe, um, how do you as that general manager maintain or ensure that your staff are getting the care that they need after they've been dealing with others and helping others? This is something that is so important to us and I'm I'm sure that we fail sometimes as an organisation, but we try really, really hard. Um, It's interesting, Lana, I think that the trauma that our teams experience isn't necessarily about what happened to the patient in front of them. All of our staff members who come to work for us are already very experienced emergency or ICU people. And there is always a, a grief associated with a death or a disability or a grieving family member that you are hugging or holding their hand or delivering bad news. I think the additional trauma that our teams face is the question of, it was just me. Did I miss something? Could I have done something differently? Mm. Because we all know that death is a part of life and sometimes doing your best isn't enough. But when you've got a nurse by themselves or you've got a doctor and a nurse by themselves. I know the thing that always scares me the most when I go out is, what if I can't do what I need to do? There's no one else there. And so a part of, I think one of the most important things that we can do as an organisation is offer safe debriefing spaces. And so there's several different ways that we do that. One is um, when a team comes back having a, a hot debrief, just the opportunity to not have to get straight back on the plane again, but to sit down and say, all right, how did that go? And not in a deconstructing critical way, but in a, are you okay? What just happened there? Do we all right. just, do we all even agree on what happened there? Um, and for our pilots too, right, who are up the front, hearing something happening up the back, was this mm-hmm. expected? Was this unexpected? Is this normal? It, did we all do the right thing? Did we get there quick enough? Allowing that instant opportunity to reassure people, you did your best. 
From a psychological standpoint too, we have a couple of things in place and one is a, a peer support program. And so it's really important that if that I'm notified that a death or a significant event has happened. Um, and it might not be a death, it just might be something that was really tough to deal with and yay, the patient's fine, but I just had to do CPR unexpectedly on a child and I felt unprepared or, or whatever it might be. We have a, a peer support program where the next day one of the team is just going to call you and say, hey, you're traveling okay? What do you need next? I'm here for you and if you want to have a chat, then great. Peer support is not psychological assistance. It's a step in the right direction. And so we also have an employee assistance program where we offer staff and staff's family members the ability to engage with a psychologist at the organisation's expense for several sessions. Um, And that can be about work-related stuff, but also about the other things going on in our lives that impact the way we work and our ability to respond to trauma. Um, And so having those frameworks and systems built in is a really core uh, priority of the organisation to have the employee assistance program. And I have to tell you, Lana, after living in Kenya for eight years, my husband and I throughout our time in Kenya, we're regularly talking to a psychologist and we still regularly do. Investment in our own well-being and mental health is just so critical. And I'll be Mm. the first person to say I have benefited from it and do not hesitate to reach out as a clinician. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of honesty and investment in your own well-being. That's so true. Well, I'll admit that um, I don't work on the front lines. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. But I too have used uh, that same program because in some of the work that I've done and some of the interviews I've done, it's it's been quite eye-opening for me. And you never quite know when it's going to stir something within you that, you know, from your past or whatever, that's going to cause a problem. And you know, Lana, for anyone listening to this podcast, it's really interesting to listen to these stories. But whether you're a clinician or a lay person or a partner of a clinician who's been impacted by this stuff, sometimes vicarious trauma can bring up our own things that we didn't even realize were there. And it's really important not to bury that stuff. It's so important to reach out for help. I think that partners of clinicians sometimes don't feel like They know what to do if someone comes home and has a debrief. I would come home at the end of the day sometimes and debrief to my husband and feel really good about it. And I realized at the end of our time in Kenya, there was a lot of trauma carried with that because he couldn't do anything about fixing those systems. I could, but he was powerless. And so I think sometimes you don't even have to be on the front line to experience that trauma. And acknowledging that and getting help for that is just so important. I totally agree. I wanted to tell you also that before you came to work for the Royal Flying Doctor Service, I learned, I think it would have been within my first year or two of working here, there was a story that came across my desk, which I've never forgotten. It was a a South Australian story. It was a, a man had been transported from Alice Springs to Adelaide. And um, it had st- you may have heard of this. I'm not sure. It's, it's such an amazing story. He had been working at Pine Gap, which is just outside of Alice, yeah. and he had reported to the medical officer because he had chest pains. And the medical officer said, oh, uh, had a listen to his heart, said, we need to get you to hospital. Got him to Alice Springs. He was put onto a plane. But before the plane even took off, he's, he had a heart attack and his, his heart stopped. 
And the flight nurse that was on that plane had a defibrillator and got his heart started again. And the plane took off and went to Adelaide. But it's not, it's a fairly lengthy journey yeah. from, from Alice to um, Adelaide. And his heart stopped 65 times. And it was restarted every single time by that flight nurse. <laughs> and and he lived. He yes. lived. And he he's come back to visit um, that flight nurse and to visit the um, Adelaide base and so forth. And she said she couldn't believe it when she looked at the defibrillator because it keeps has like a counter for how many times it's been used. And yeah. she could not believe it. Um, but it's those sort of things, the unexpected, that's I think sometimes we don't realise the impact that they can have on staff yeah. or I'm sure that man was very bruised and battered as Yes, well. <laughs> that is extremely unpleasant for him, but pleasant to be alive. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any um, patient story that you've been personally involved in, Marty, or that you've had some direct involvement in that has stuck with you or been one that's been hard to shake because it's been so traumatic? To be honest, in Australia, not so much. When I was in the US, I worked in an inner city trauma center and I, I saw a little girl who'd been mauled by a dog and she didn't make it and that kind of thing just sticks with you I, I think some of the more impacting stories uh, are from Kenya and it's it's actually not the individual stories Lana it's things like the night that the oxygen stopped working and there were babies that died because the oxygen stopped working. And the stories like that are why I'm so passionate about being a leader of the organisation rather than on the front line, because it doesn't matter how good of a doctor you are, if the oxygen stops working, that's a system that's failed. And Mm. I'm so passionate and that's a really obvious one, but there are lots of little systems across Australia that are all individually doing their very best to care for the patient in front of them. But it's not until we bring those systems together that the overall patient journey and outcome can change. And sometimes this is a 30-year journey. The patient that has a runny nose and a sore throat in a remote community today could end up with rheumatic heart fever tomorrow and then needs a valve replacement and has a heart attack at 37. The systems connecting our patients across geography and across time are why I love being in leadership in an organisation because you asked me what I loved about my job and I told you about the operational What I really love about my job is the future and it's looking ahead and saying, what organisations can I work with? What relationships can I form? What data can I share that helps bring this stuff together? Who can we work with together across all of our health partners to make a difference? And if I do my job really well, I'm not going to see a lot of change today, but 30 years down the track, I'll see that fruit. And you don't get the dopamine hit in leadership that you get on the front line. And you might not actually see the results of the work that you've put in, but I'm really passionate about strengthening systems and training programs and partnerships so that bit by bit by bit, by the time I die, I'm hoping that remote Indigenous communities have got the same ages of death as our metro communities, right? Mm. And I won't ever know how much of an impact I, in my role, or RFDS South Australia Northern Territory had on that, 
But I bet there's a little bit of a drop in the ocean that's contributed to that. And that's what I'm passionate about. That's great. Well, the Stroke Alliance work completely aligns with that. You are so involved in that. Would you mind just giving me a little synopsis of what your work is within the Stroke Alliance? Yeah, absolutely. The Stroke Alliance is exactly that, as you said, Lana. It's a bunch of organisations that have come together. And what we're doing is we're looking at the predictive data for 2050. And what we know is that the number of strokes and the number of Australians impacted by stroke is going to be astronomical. I think the statistic is once every four minutes, someone is expected to have a stroke in Australia by 2050, something horrific like that. And what we're trying to do as the Stroke Alliance is work on various stages of the journey. We are looking at um, better education of remote Australians because remote and rural Australians have strokes much younger and their impacts are much greater and their delays to care are phenomenal. And so we're looking at education to diagnose stroke earlier. We're working with our service partners in uh, metropolitan hospitals, our stroke specialists to improve telehealth pathways. But my main role is the national clinical lead for the Aeromedical Stroke Project, which is looking to miniaturise brain scanners to put them on planes. CT scanners weigh hundreds and hundreds of kilograms, but we are working with manufacturers to try and develop scanners that are less than 50 kilograms in weight, uh, either CT scan or microwave scan to diagnose strokes out in the bush. So if someone calls and says, my face is drooping and they're two hours away from a hospital, right now we would go out and get them and then we would fly two hours back to the hospital and they would get their scan at, you know, four to six hours after their symptoms have started and the window for treatment's four hours. If we can get out to them with a brain scanner and scan them on the ground at the two-hour point and we know they've got an ischemic stroke and we can give them clot-busting drugs, then we can treat them at two hours. Something like a million brain cells die per minute in a stroke, that's extraordinary. Huge. So working with the Stroke Foundation, the Stroke Alliance, RMIT, uh, partners all over Australia to develop these machines that an aeromedical team can use, diagnose, treat, get people where they need to go uh, more appropriately. That's what we're working on right now. It's such a game changer, isn't it? I've talked about it before on the podcast because a lot of people don't realise that there's two types of strokes. There's a clot yeah. or a bleed and that you need to have the correct diagnosis as to whether it's a clot or a bleed so Absolutely. that you can then deliver the correct medical drugs to be able to manage either. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's one that your impact, that your work will have a lot shorter lead time than 30 <laughs> years, Marty. I really do. I really so, hope so, Lana. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's already going in leaps and bounds and I can see that within the next several years having those scanners available, portable scanners available will just make a total difference. So much, so much. Now, we're known, I think, as Australians for having a, a somewhat sense of humour in what would otherwise be deemed dark times and I know that the RFDS can always look at the funny side of things. Do you have... A memorable story that that makes you chuckle or makes you smile when you think about it? Absolutely. So many funny stories. But one that comes to mind is, is the story of Jake. 
Jake was eight years old and he needed flying from one hospital to another and I was a a part of the team on board with him. And Jake um, was this lovely child with autism, very, very active young man. And we uh, wanted to just make him comfortable on the flight. We didn't want to have to give him sedating drugs or anything. And we knew that if we worked with mum, that he'd he'd be fine. But he got on the plane and we strap him into the stretcher and immediately Jake wants to push buttons. There are so many buttons on an air aircraft, so many on an aeromedical aircraft. There's monitors and ventilators and my goodness, Jake wanted to push all the buttons. So fortunately, handy dandy iPhones are an absolute lifesaver. And so I pulled out my phone and gave Jake a couple of games to play with, um, pulled out my balloon animals app to, you know, blow up some pretend balloon animals. And that was all great. And Jake was doing well. And then he wanted to play with my iPhone without my interference. And I was absolutely fine with that. And so Jake played with my phone all the way into the hospital. Everything went smoothly and we dropped him off. And then on the way home, I uh, opened up my iPhone on the plane uh, just to see what had happened. And I found Jake's contact info in my contact list, as well as several of his friends and family members. And obviously, Jake had had a great time making sure I could stay informed about his progress uh, at the click of a button with my iPhone. So thanks, Jake. Much appreciated. <laughs> you obviously left an impression on him. <laughs> <laughs> One way or the other, I guess, Lana. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So, Marty, if somebody listening to this podcast is keen, it's they may be already a nurse or a doctor or maybe they're at med school or they just aspire to walking that same path, what would they need to do to be qualified to work for the Royal Flying Doctor Service there in SANT? First of all, put your assumptions aside at the door. I think I used to think that you had to be, you know, a top of your game, specialist, everything, emergency doctor to be at the RFDS. But we have such a, a broad scope of practice and such an incredible range of services that we offer our patients. The role that we're most known for is, of course, the emergency response and care. And we are we have a wonderful team of retrieval doctors. Uh, and retrieval doctors have got training in either emergency medicine, anaesthesia, or general practice with anaesthesia training. And so if you want to be doing the cutting edge adrenaline stuff, get qualified as a fellow in emergency medicine or anaesthesia. It's really important to get some good experience under your belt before you come on a plane because you need to know that you can handle and have seen pretty much everything. But what's also wonderful is that we're working on training positions. Uh, We already have a training position open for senior anaesthesia trainees in Port Augusta um, and we're working on getting accredited for emergency medicine trainees as well. Similarly, if you're a nurse, uh, to do aeromedical retrieval, we do need um, our aeromedical nurses to have formal qualifications in emergency or ICU care. Once you're a great ED or ICU nurse, there's nothing that you need to do in a plane that you haven't done before. You just don't have quite as much room to swing things around in. And we also really value the additional skill of midwifery. It's a wonderful skill that we we highly value in addition to the emergency and ICU training. But we also provide a lot of primary and preventive care. And so general practitioners and rural generalists are a core part of our team. And we have a slightly unique model in Port Augusta in that our general practitioners do go on some retrievals. We scope very carefully what we task our general practitioners and 
rural generalists too. So if you're a GP that would work in a remote emergency department and, you know, manage some fractures and manage some infections and manage uh, diabetes, then we you can do that on a plane too. We just wouldn't task mm. you to a major trauma that requires intensive care skills. And we also are an accredited training base for general practitioners. And so both ACRAM and the RACGP um, have our information on the training site. So if you're a, a senior GP trainee or rural generalist trainee, Port Augusta is a fantastic place to do a combination of emergency and primary care. One of the unique things we have about our model too is not everyone wants to live in the country and I think for a really long time we've tried to recruit by saying please move to the country but it doesn't suit every family and it doesn't suit every phase of life, right? And so many of our 25 doctors in Port Augusta actually live in Adelaide and they work for us one week in four. They maintain their high acuity skills in the city, but are really passionate about remote and regional care. And so come out to Port Augusta one week in four or two weeks in four to work with us. And so it's a lovely way to have a hybrid approach to caring for um, our most vulnerable people whilst still maintaining that balance that we all struggle to maintain as, as family, I think. And then mm. we also have physiotherapists, we have dentists, we have occupational therapists, we have community midwives. Honestly, if you're in healthcare and you're experienced, there's probably a place for you. Why would working in the RFDS be different? What do your staff say to you about what makes it such a different work environment? Working for the RFDS is all about the why, and it's less about the what we do, it's the who we do it for. And almost everybody that I work with here has a friend or a family member that lives rurally or regionally or they know someone that's been impacted or has poor access to healthcare. And being a part of a system that supports equal access for every South Australian and Territorian to high quality healthcare, no matter where they live, work or play is, is the heart of who we are. So in addition to the, it's a wonderful thing to do because we love serving underserved patients. It's a team that feels like family. I'm really proud of the culture that we have here at RFDS SANT. Um, and no culture is perfect. There are always things you want to improve, but we really care about our people. We truly do. There's something special about the tightness of a small community um, and the support that you get as a small community. And one thing about RFDS is that even if you're alone on the plane, you're not alone. We have incredible mm. supports on the other side of the radio. Our pilots and our nurses and our doctors are all great mates and support each other. When you're at work, you're a part of a team. And when you're not at work, the team's there for you if, if you need them. And I think for all of our doctors and nurses too, it is that sense of team. Sometimes remote and rural work can feel really isolating. And what we are really trying to focus on here at RFDS is that we are a team. If you're a trainee doctor or a, or a trainee nurse, you're never alone. You're always with someone either on the end of the phone 24-7 or with you. Um, we really try to mentor and support and buddy our staff so that there is always that sense of support. 24-7 here, there is someone who will pick up the phone. And if they won't pick up the phone, their boss will. And if their boss won't pick up the phone, the CEO will. The escalation doesn't stop. You'll always have someone available. In my intro, Marty, I said that 
We're really lucky to have staff that serve us for long periods of time and it's not uncommon for some of our staff to have worked for us for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years and I think you've just explained why that is. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I know you've got a very busy schedule so I'm feeling a little privileged. (laughs) My pleasure, Lana. So I really appreciate all you do and a big thank you to the whole team down there and I hope to come and visit again sometime soon. We'd love to see you and stay in touch. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Word of mouth is always the best promotion for a podcast. So if you enjoy this podcast or a specific story, please share with family and friends. If you haven't already, join our Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community. And you can also send feedback, questions or comments to me directly at lana.mitchell at rfds.org.au. Donations to support the Royal Flying Doctor Service can always be made through our website at flyingdoctor.org.au. The Flying Doctor Podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Mm-hmm.